welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Good afternoon. This last Friday, me and Lydia went on a hot air balloon ride for the first time. It was fun. But we had to wake up really early. You know, check-in was at 6 o'clock. And I don't know about you, but when I have to wake up at 4.40 to get somewhere, I don't really care how I look, or at least that's what I thought. And so I just woke up, I was getting dressed, I put on some jeans that I always wear, I put on some skater shoes that I always wear, and I looked at Lydia just to make sure we were good, and she was putting on jeans and a t-shirt too. I was like, okay, cool. At least we're looking the same. I looked in the mirror, my hair was a little longer, I just cut it this morning because of that experience. And you could tell which side I was laying on. You know, it was like straight up. And I was like, ah, who cares? It's early in the morning. No one's going to care. Man, we get there. We were on time because we didn't care about what we looked like. And we were one of the first ones. They told us, okay, sign in, get in the party bus. So we're sitting in this party bus. And again, I still think I, I look fine. Well, man, as the couples keep coming in, wow, was I wrong. People would look like they're going, like they meant to be on a party bus. Like me and Lydia looked like we slept in the party bus. People walking in like rough night. I'm like, yeah, you, you don't even know. And I was like, man, wow, was I wrong? People care about what they look like when they go on a hot air balloon ride. And the reason why I say this is because I think that happens to me a lot. And I think that happens to us is we might think we're okay in a certain scenario based on the standard that we set for ourselves. But until someone else comes into the picture, we might go like, wow, you know, they set the bar higher. It's like my car. We live on a dirt road, dirt all around us. And so we sometimes think our car is clean until we come into the city and we see all these clean cars that are in parked in garages. We're like, wow, it's dirty. And so the reason why I say this is because today what we're going to be looking at is God's law. And I think a lot of us in relationship to God we might think we're fine, but it's based on the, the standard that we're using to measure ourselves. And based on that standard, we might think we're fine, but what we'll find out is everybody, every single person in all of mankind, when they see God, their mouth will be stopped and they'll realize how inadequate they are and how sinful they actually are. And seriously, like, man, when we were sitting in that party bus, and people were coming in, I realized I had a hole in my jeans that was not on purpose. I realized how dirty my shoes were. Everything just seemed a lot more sharp. And like I felt my hair, I was like, wow, that looks bad. It made more sense, and I paid attention way more to how I looked and how good they looked. And I realized I thought I didn't care, but I cared way more when I was faced against that standard. And I think a lot of us, we might think we're good, But when judgment comes, when we see God face to face, every single person will care. And every single person will know they do not match up. And so the passage that we're going to be in is Romans chapter 3. And we're mainly going to be looking at verses 9 through 20. And so we're going to look at this text a lot. So if you guys have your Bibles, please pull it up. If you guys have notes, please take notes. We're in a transition stage of the book of Romans. 
he's finishing up his first argument that he's starting the book with, and he's going to move on next week to, the, to another argument. And so we're going to be in Romans chapter 3. We're going to read verses 1 through 20, but we're mainly going to focus in on 9 through 20. So let's go ahead and read it, and then I'll pray. It says, Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, just by itself, this word is, is heavy and exposing and extremely negative. I just ask, Heavenly Father, that as we look at your word, that your word would cut us deep. It would expose the depths of our sin and kind of take off the blinders where some of us may be blind. Not so that we would be condemned, but that it would actually push us to need a Savior, push us to your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Please use your word as like a scalpel cutting out what needs to be cut out. And then use the gospel to heal us like ointment to a flesh wound. Please, you are what we need. So will you please today, tonight, meet with us, be with us, and answer our greatest need. We love you, Lord. We ask, please send your spirit. Holy Spirit, fill me up. Fill all of us up. Speak through me. Use me for the blessing and the benefit of your body. We love you, Lord. We love you, Father. We love you, Holy Spirit. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So before I start getting into the verses 9 through 20, what I want to do is kind of catch us up real quick on where we're at in the book of Romans. So Romans 1, 16, chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 says, 
For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. These two verses are the theme of the whole book of Romans. Every single argument that he makes in the book of Romans can be tied back to these two verses. And the first argument that he's going to do is, for it is the power of God for salvation. It's not within man to save themselves, but it's God's power that saves man. And so his first argument is chapters 1, verses 18 through 320, which we're, we're ending at. And the argument is that Gentiles are sinners. All of the rest of chapter 1, Gentiles are sinners. They've sinned against God. Though they knew God was creator, they worship the creature rather than the creator. And then chapter 2, it's religious people are sinners. Though they had the law of God, they failed to fulfill the law of God. Therefore, they will be judged and are sinners. And then in our section, what's interesting is in chapter 3, 1 through 8, what he does is he kind of breaks and takes a little Q&A sesh. And he just answers questions that are common that he was probably getting from Jews during the time. And so he breaks into this little Q&A sesh. And we're, we're going to pass over that real quick. Like we're going to go through it just so I could show you what's going on. But we're mainly going to be in the last section, which is he sums it up, verses 9 through 20. And he says, every single person is a sinner. And he gives scriptural reasons and basis for his argument. And then he concludes the whole thing in verses 19 and 20. And then he moves on to the next argument. How can someone be justified in the rest of chapter 3 and chapter 4? So real quick, look at chapter 3 with me. Chapter 3, verse 1. So again, he's just now said circumcision basically means nothing. To be a Jew is just to have faith. And, you know, he's kind of dogging these Jews. And so the, the natural question that would come from it from a Jew would be like, look at verse 1. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Like, what's the point? And his answer, which we would have assumed from chapter 2, is there's no, no advantage. There's no value. But he says, much in every way. Isn't that interesting? And he says, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. And so he's like, there's a value, there's a privilege in being a Jew. Is that to begin with, they were actually entrusted and given the very words of God. It's kind of the same. We can, in, we can understand it this way. Is there any value to a kid being raised in a Christian household? Oh, yes, much in every way. They're raised with the word of God, hopefully being preached every day in their household. They're raised among saints and believers who trust in the person and work of Jesus. That's an advantage. That's a blessing. Much in every way is it a value to be circumcised and be a Jew because they were entrusted with the very oracles of God. And then he moves on real quick and he says, What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. And he says, let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. What he's saying here is quickly, they're going, well, then if we're unfaithful, does it make God unfaithful? And he's like, no, no, no. If you're a liar, God's still true. God's still faithful. And what that actually does is if you, everyone's a liar, it actually shows off God's faithfulness even more. And so the next questions are kind of what 
Paul would say is slanderous. Look at verses 5 through 8. But if our unrighteousness, again, these are probably Jewish complaints to Paul's gospel. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? And he says, I speak in a human way. Basically, like, they don't even understand. They're just human. This is a human understanding. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? And then here comes another question. But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? And then Paul's answer, as some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. What he's going to do too, all these questions throughout the book of Romans, he's actually going to answer them. And he's going to answer these questions in later chapters. So you can kind of keep those in mind. That's why I'm not going to dive into them now because we'll get to them later. But one big argument that the Jews and certain people have against Paul's gospel, which is the biblical gospel, is that, well, if where sin increases, grace abounds, well, should we just keep on sinning so that grace may abound? And the answer is by no means. And he's going to answer that if you guys want to do a later study is chapter 6, chapter 5 and chapter 6 and dig into that. And then the last question that he answers in this little Q&A sesh is verse 9. And this is where we start our text. It says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. So, I don't know if you guys caught it, but did you hear the first verse? Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. And then now we come to this verse and he says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. Seems a little contradictory, but it's only contradictory if he's asking the same question. But he's asking a different question, slightly different. And verse 1 was, is there any benefit? Is there any privilege? Not, is there any favoritism? Or are we inherently better? But then this verse is saying, are we Jews any better off? Are we inherently better because we're Jews? And the answer is no, not at all. We could see that because of the way he answers. He says, For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. And then he goes on, as it is written, and lists multiple scriptures throughout the Old Testament, proving his point that all are sinners. And so, let's start with that. All are under sin. Every single person, the universal impact of sin. The word under sin gives the portrayal not so much of just the acts of sin, but actually the power of sin. Sin is a power over us, over this world. That, that's why it kind of says, you know, people are enslaved to it. It's ruling. It's reigning. We'll get all those pictures throughout Romans that sin actually rules, sin actually reigns, and people are enslaved to it or freed from it because it's actually an impact and it rules over. It's like a cloud that all of us have do not see anymore. It's like a certain weight that we've become comfortable with. It's like gravity. Though it's always there, we might not know it's there or even pay attention to it. But sin throughout all of human history all of every country, every culture, sin is ruling and reigning. Everyone is under sin. Make sense? And so he starts with that. We've argued that all people, Jews and Greeks, are under sin. 
And then it goes on and gives a couple verses to show the universal nature of sin or impact of sin. Look at verse 10 with me. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Do you guys get that? Like, how much more of no ones or none does he have to put in there to prove his point? He's like, no one does good. No one understands. No one seeks God. No one, not even one, none is righteous. He's just pounding that in that no one is good. And so that means your kids are not good. That means your kids are sinners. That means your coworkers are sinners. That means your family members are sinners. That means you are a sinner. Every single person is unrighteous in the appearance of God. Every single person is unrighteous. Every single person has fallen short, and we do not seek God. No one understands. No one seeks for God. And no one even does good. That's the universal impact of sin. And then he goes on, verses 13 and 14, And he talks about the sins of speech. Look at this with me. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongue to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. So let's just start with verse 13. Their throat is an open grave. He's talking about the inner corruption that flows out of our speech. Our throat is an open grave, just spewing out death. Speech is the most, the easiest to see in human culture, how it is corrupt. No matter where we go, we see speech hurting people and cursing people. And we see it in our minds and our thoughts and in our own words. And so he goes on to describe it with these pictures. Their throat is an open grave. From it just flows death. And then the second one, they use their tongues to deceive. And what he's, what he's getting at here is the use of the tongue to tell falsehood and flattery. And so like even in our flattery, we deceive. We use our tongues to deceive. Oh, have a good day. And then right after, it's like, man, I don't even like that guy. Or like when we're on the phone and we're, oh, yeah, have a good day, man. Talk to you later. And you're like, gosh, I, that guy talks too much. How often do we use those types of language? How much we hate people with our own words. Oh, well, I just need to vent. Like to our closest companions, how often we just tear people up with our own words. Oh, but it's not in front of them. Yeah, but you know what we're doing with our words? You know, James 3 talks about the power of life and death is in the tongue. And how often do we, even as Christians try to strike and kill and hurt with our tongues. Yeah, it's not face-to-face, but man, behind people's backs, we are killing them, hurting them, and just cursing them. And then the second, the third thing, the venom of asps is under their lips. And this is talking about the destructive nature of communication, the deadly nature of communication. Just basically, as we speak, We are hurting people and killing people and destroying people. And, man, we see that a lot, especially now in our social media age. Man, how often we're sitting behind our desks 
just trying to hurt people. I mean, read comments on Christian audio or Christian stuff, material. Man, how brutal people are who claim the name of Christ. It's crazy. It's mind-blowing. And that's us. That's not somebody else. That's us doing those very things. And then even as we read them, we might even curse. Oh, I wouldn't do that. Oh, look how immature they are. And we, we start ridiculing them and using our words to tear them down. Well, I didn't leave a comment, but you're doing the very same thing. God sees that. And then the last thing with the sins of speech, verse 14, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. And so this talks about that speech, the sinfulness of speech is not occasional. It says their, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. And I know this, I talk a lot. Man, I fail in my speech all the time. Take my word for it, all right? Man, I find myself just wanting to take my words back so much. That's usually the thing I get in trouble mo for the most is my mouth. Man, I'm always just, dang it, why did I say that? Ah, oh, you know, wanting to grab those things back. Our words, our mouths are just full of bitterness and curses. I mean, think about it. Think about all the broken relationships you have is because of something you said or something someone else said. Think about the times you stay up late at night thinking of conversations that you've had with somebody, arguing with them. Man, we're just filled with bitterness and curses. Man, I so many times bring up people in my mind and I argue with them and I tear them down in my mind years later. It's like that guy doesn't even remember what happened. I'm like, oh, I tore him up. You know, like I'm like thinking of arguments. I'm tearing them down, rethinking of them, rebringing them up, tearing them down again. It's like we are filled with bitterness and curses. Think of how many family gatherings are just tore up from our mouths tore up from arguments and bitterness that we bring up, especially these days. I know it's kind of negative. I'm being a negative Nancy, but we'll get to a positive in a little bit. Verse 15, then he turns into the harmful results of sin on society. So the first one was the universal impact of sin. The second was the sins of speech. And then verses 15 through 17 is the harmful results of sin on society. Look at what he says, verse 15. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. So they're quick to shed blood. Think about it. Pick any culture, any century, any country, any people. In that history, in that time, there's probably bloodshed. They're quick to shed blood. And it's usually because they wanted something, and that person wasn't giving it to them, so they shed blood. Think about any culture, any century, any people, any time. We can look back in human history and we have led a path of misery and ruin. And he says that in verse 16. In their paths are ruin and misery. And then verse 17. And the way of peace they have not known. And I was thinking about this. The way of peace they have not known. I don't even think some of us even want peace. Think about the political debates we've had at family gatherings. Think about the racial injustice, the racial tensions that we have. 
man, we, we say we want peace. We think we want peace. But anytime anybody gets in our way, we will do anything to stop them so that we may have peace. We don't care about world peace. We don't care about having peace with our neighbor because we, we burn those bridges and just go away and shut our garage and stay in our house. We don't care about building relationships and keeping those relationships healthy. We don't know peace. I don't even think some of us really even want peace. Our society is being broken apart, and I think we're realizing it. I mean, it's every culture, right? It's not just ours. It's not just this time. It's all throughout human history. This is us. In our path is ruin and misery because we are all under sin. And the way of peace, we have not known it. And he goes on in verse 18. He gives us the root cause of all of this. He says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. The root cause of all of this sin is that there is no fear of God before our eyes. We have not respected God. We have not feared God. If we do fear anything, it's like almost everything but God. Everyone else but God. And, you know, I think a lot of us Christians might hear that. It's like, oh, yeah, our society's going down because there's no fear of God. And we give like a hearty amen. Like, yeah, see, our culture's going down because they've taken God out of the schools. It's because they don't say, in God we trust anymore. I was talking to this guy at work. Man, he is probably the most... Uh, it's hard to find a positive word to say I'm going to do the bad things that this is saying. Oh, <laughs> should have thought about this. But he, he's a rough guy, or I'll say that. He's a rough guy and always talking badly about women, always talking about badly about everybody. And the other day, I mean, I've never heard him talk about God before at all. The other day, he's talking about something bad, and then out of his mouth was, Man, that's why our society is going bad, because they've taken God out of our schools. I was like, wait, what? He's like, because they don't, he's all, because they don't know that God created them. I was like, wait, do you? I was like, wait, I was so confused. But I was, I started telling him, like, you think that's the problem with our society? Is that we just taken the name God out of our schools? I was like, no, the problem with our society is that you, that you say you fear God, you do not live like you fear God. I was like, that's the problem with our society. And we had a debate about that's the real problem is that we really do not fear God and we don't live like it. It's not that we, oh, have a sign in our house that says, oh, as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. No, it's about what do we fear? The problem is that we have not feared God as he should be feared. That guy living like a heathen, and he just says the problem with our society, blaming it on all these other people, is that we've taken God out of our schools. I mean, that would probably help, but the problem is that all of us are under sin, and we have not feared God the way we should. Like, think about it. Even in our household, it says no one seeks for God. How many of us this week have failed to even seek God out in our, in our houses? Yeah, we have a sign that says, we'll serve the Lord or in God we trust, but then we live as if we don't even fear him. We don't even seek him as he should be sought. Does that make sense? So yes, our culture, our society, they're taking God out of it, and that's a problem. But every culture has had that problem. Every single culture has had that problem. 
And so the reason is that we do not fear God as we should. As I was studying this, I know it's rough, and I know it's really negative, like all negative. (laughs) What's the point of all this? In verses 19 and 18, Paul concludes his argument, his first argument, that all are sinners. And he gives a reasoning for it. The reason is that the law was given to the Jews to hold the world accountable, to shut the mouths of Jews and to hold the world accountable so that we would all know we will never be justified by works. And so look at it with me. Verse 19 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Look again at 19. I want to kind of flesh something out for us. So he says, now that we know whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So who's under the law? The Jews were under the law. So he says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So it's just to the Jews so that every, we would say Jews, mouth may be stopped. And then it says, it gives another reason, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Isn't that weird? It says that the law was given to the Jews so that their mouths may be stopped and it was given to the Jews and then so that the world may be held accountable. It's weird. On first glance, it kind of doesn't make sense. How is the whole world held accountable? Because the law was given to the Jews. And the answer is kind of this. God was doing, he did kind of two case studies in the history of mankind. He did the first case study in Romans 1, 18 through the rest of the chapter. He created man. They've sinned against him. And though they knew God, they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. They failed. So then what what God did is he took a people, the Jews, his covenantal people, and elected them, and gave them the law. And then they realized they could not do it. And so he's doing a a big case study going, so if the Jews couldn't do it, therefore the whole world can't do it. So every single person is held accountable and will not be justified by the law. Does that make sense? And so it's like this big, giant case study that God did with the Jewish people. It's kind of cool thinking about it that way. And so we see in this passage... The purpose of the law was never to justify anybody. The purpose of the law was to actually to reveal that we are sinners. Isn't that cool? Or maybe not cool, I don't know. I think it's cool. Because of the, we know the ending as a Christian. The purpose of the law was never to push someone to look into themselves to try and achieve perfection or try and achieve acceptance from God. The purpose of the law was to shut their mouths, knowing that they do not stand up against that. The purpose of the law was like me sitting in that party bus going, wow, I'm not good enough. Because that's what I felt like. (laughs) You know, we are not good enough. And all of our mouths will be stopped. And no one will be justified in our deeds. None of us will be justified in his sight. Look at the last verse, verse 20. For by works of the law... No human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And this is why it's important that we see the law of God as not as, I would say, as a covenant of works, but as a covenant of grace. The law of God is grace to us 
that it shows us our, need, our sin and thus our need of a Savior. So what's the purpose of the law is to shut our mouths, know that we'll never be justified by our works, and to push us to the only person and the only work and the only atonement that will justify us. So how is somebody justified? It's through the person and work of Jesus. There's a passage in Hebrews 10 that says, the blood of bulls and goats cannot forgive sin, cannot take away sin. But the only sacrifice, the only atonement that can take away sin is the work of Jesus in his life, death, and resurrection. When we put our faith and trust in that, that's how we become justified. And in the rest of Romans 3 and Romans 4, Romans 4 Paul is going to start to argue how someone is justified. In the Old Testament, the believers were justified exactly the same way. He's going to use the case study of David and Abraham to show that they were saved just as we are, but they looked forward to the person and work of Jesus, to the sacrifice of Jesus. We look behind and remember and see and experience the substitutionary atoning death of Jesus. Make sense? So let's get ready to take communion and let us remember the purpose of the law is that when all of us come encounter with God, we will realize we are not good enough. We will realize we, we have sinned. Just like Isaiah, he got in front of God and he said, woe is me. And he's become undone because he was face to face with perfection, with holiness. And if some of us may not think that we're sinners or as bad, it's probably because we haven't seen God. And we maybe haven't been looking at his word. And so I just encourage you, if you guys don't think you need God, if you don't think you need Christ, pray to him, ask him to reveal your need. Read his word, see his law, and it will show you your need of Jesus. And I think a lot of us live into the cultural norm that we have something, even though we don't preach this, but we kind of live like this, that we have something good within us. We, we don't need something outside of us. We have it within us. No, we don't. Your kids need Jesus. When they disobey, they don't need to just be grounded. They need to actually have the gospel preached to them. We almost live as if, like what our culture believes, that our kids start with a blank slate. They don't. They're sinners. They're under sin. They need Jesus. Our coworkers need Jesus. Our family members, though they might be physically better than us, they need Jesus. We need Jesus. That's the only way we'll ever be forgiven and justified in the sight of God. And we take this communion, this body of our Lord and the blood of our Lord to remember and experience the means of grace that this is to us. On the cross, his body was broken so that we can be made whole. On the cross, his blood was shed and poured so that we can be forgiven and cleansed of all of our guilt, all of our shame. Let's partake of the body. On the night that he was portrayed, he said, take and eat. Let's take. And the blood of our Lord Jesus 
for the forgiveness of our sins was spilt for us to forgive us of our sins. Let's partake of the blood. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for how your word exposes who we really are, the depths of our sin, how we have sinned against you, how we need you every minute for everything, for justification. We cannot make it on our own. We are not good enough apart from you. And apart from you, we can do nothing. We need your grace and your kindness. And so I ask, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out our transgression. Wash us thoroughly from our iniquity and cleanse us from our sin. Only you have we sinned against. And in your judgment, you will be justified. But we praise you and thank you for the person and work of Jesus. And we thank you for the substitutionary atoning death on the cross. How it heals us of all of our brokenness. And it mends that huge chasm that was between God and man. And it allows us to come into your presence with praise and thanksgiving. Knowing that we will not be pushed out. That we will not be judged and condemned because Christ fulfilled all of the law. He is the only one who is righteous. No one outside of him is righteous. So we thank you for the righteous, good Lord that you are, Jesus. Please be with us. Please strengthen us. And if there's any of us who are struggling with sin and temptation to sin, will you please meet us and help the law, your law, push them and push us to seek you because we need you. Also give us encouragement and strength and boldness to preach to others because they need it. Not because we think we're right, but because they need it. We love you, Lord. We pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at covgraceminifee.org. May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.